back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back, friends. How are you doing out there? I hope you're wonderful and lovely because we have a story for you. Yes, we do. We have a story wrapped in a story wrapped in a history lesson. It's just a lot. So we haven't been doing a great job introducing ourselves the last few episodes. So yeah, I feel like we should take a second. I'm Tommy. I'm Mick. And we are here today to bring you a topsy-turvy tale about the Ku Klux Klan. Yes. You say we have a little history. I feel like we do it like a mini history lesson, like history fun facts with every episode. Yeah, we do. This is uh, a bit more because I want to make sure that we really understand like the backdrop, especially of like the KKK in the 1920s, which is where we're going today. I know about the three faces of the KKK. Oh, good. We're talking about that today. Uh, yay. I... Not so much the third phase, but everything happens like right in the heat of the second phase. We're talking about yeah, that. Yeah. All right. Well, do you want to chit chat or shall we dive right into it? Maybe let's just dive because I think this is going to be a bit of a, it's going to be a journey. It's going to be a long one. Obligatory weather update. It's beautiful outside. It's gorgeous. It's 80 degrees it's... here. It's April 12th and it's 80 degrees it's out. It's going to be 30 on Sunday. What? Yeah. Why'd you say that? Uh, because I'm planning for my plants. Oh, that's a good point. Okay, let me uh, put in some of my throat numbing spray and then we'll get started. (laughs) So we have a lot to do today. And because you do know some stuff about this, uh, please feel free to interject in my history (laughs) lesson as it unfolds. Um, I'm only a casual observer of the KKK. I mean, I think that's probably... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the safest vantage point. <laughs> Although there are some really good documentaries out there. I watched like everything available just to wrap my head around all of it. And it was, it's been a very interesting and very uh, depressing time. There's some good documentaries. I also would recommend there's some great podcasts. Cool people mm-hmm. who did cool things was really good. Cult mm-hmm. podcast did a lot of great KKK stuff. Behind the Bastards did a good two part episode a couple years ago but it's it's stands up it's pretty good um i just love him anyway but i do too right yeah they do a great job with it so yeah there's lots of good resources out there and i certainly like i did the best job i could to kind of provide a pretty comprehensive history but i tried to make sure that it stays kind of on track to tell the story kind of where it ends so i'm gonna start today with uh you know, I love me an epistolary moment. <laughs> so uh, this is not a letter, but this is a quote from a dying declaration, which back in these days was a uh, basically a way of making a legally binding testimony um, if a person knew they were going to die before trial. Um, that possibility still exists in the mm-hmm. criminal justice system. The, the difference now versus then is that... Um, Back then, they were considered to be, like, pretty indisputable. Mm. So it was much more of a a rock-solid kind of slam-dunk testimony to have a dying declaration. When is our back then? 1925. Ah, nice. Yes. So we're actually going to read the entire dying declaration towards the end of this, but I'm going to just open up with a little bit to give us some backdrop. All right. I, Madge Oberholzer, being in full possession of my mental faculties and conscious that I am about to die, make as my dying declaration the following statements. 
My name is Madge Oberholzer. I am a resident of Marion County, State of Indiana, residing at number 5802 University Avenue, Indianapolis. I first met D.C. Stevenson at the banquet given for the governor at the Athletic Club early in January 1925. So in January 1925, D.C. Stevenson, who was known as Steve to his friends and colleagues, I will probably say that here and there just for the sake of brevity, not because he is in any way, shape or form endearing. He was one of the most powerful men in the state of Indiana in that political circle. Some might argue the most powerful, the most influential. Um, He was a complete megalomaniac, um, formidable arrogant, self-obsessed, and he was the Grand Dragon of the Indiana clan. Grand Dragon. Mm -hmm. Yes. So these are our two kind of primary people we're going to talk about today. 28-year-old Madge had no way of knowing that her attendance at that party would alter the course of her life. Her attendance at this party was very important. She needed to speak to other political figures and kind of mover shakers about her government program. She ran a statewide literacy program called the Indiana Young People's Reading Circle, uh, which was a branch of the office that would become the Department of Education. It just had a different name, but it's basically the DOE. So to be uh, a young woman like that, kind of involved in state politics, kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, at that time. So she was very, very accomplished. She, the program, in my view, as a literacy person, pretty damn <laughs> crucial. Very important work she was trying to do. Uh, it focused mostly on adult literacy stuff, um, but she did also work with kids as well, kind of in this program. And she was really doing her best uh, to balance running the program, administrating it, and also just kind of the the trappings that come with being a woman working in government in the 1920s. Mm. So she had a lot on her plate. Yeah. Women had just barely gotten the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's uh, such a badass. <laughs> she really was an advocate for literacy for all, regardless of race, which was a controversial opinion in Indiana at the time, Maybe which is a gross today. thing to say. Mm. It's a gross thing to say. I um, very happily just read the strategic plan for my district and like every, almost every item is about closing the opportunity gap. And I was like, thank God. Thank God. Yeah. Now, this was obviously a difficult opinion to hold in the 1920s in what has always been a deep, deeply conservative state. Mm -hmm. And this also made Madge's kind of personal life a little bit difficult in some ways as well, which we'll talk about. But the KKK, while Madge was working in the government, had a had the state government in what was effectively a chokehold, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, they had so much influence. They had so many ties that even though it's not directly known whether or not the cut to her funding was related to that, we do know that the KKK had their claws in so deep in state politics at that time that uh, it would not be surprising to me if programs like hers were cut um, as a result of those policies. She uh, anecdotally was also known to work with um, like um, itinerant farmers who at the time were often people that moved up from the South to, it was, it was pre like the great migration from the South, but a lot of former slaves and their, Mm-hmm. Like children and grandchildren moved to the Midwest and worked as itinerant farmers or migrant farmers. 
So she was also known to kind of have a presence in rural communities trying to help nice. uh, itinerant farmers learn how to read. Nice. I imagine that was a big deal in Indiana in the 20s. Yeah, it was not easy work. So uh, and she was just out there doing doing the good work. Um, so she needed to be at that party because she needed to advocate for her program that her budget line wouldn't get cut. She needed to make sure that if those rumors were true, that she needed to get in there and say, I need this money. Here's what I'm doing. Here's why this matters. Yep. So as you can tell, Madge Oberholzer was smart as hell. <laughs> um, she, and look, like we're going to have to talk about some of the difficulties that she had kind of balancing a lot of these ideologies. Yeah. And we'll talk about that as we get there. But you can't really argue with her accomplishments. Uh, she grew up in Indy, so she, you know, was stayed at home uh, in a humble but stable and loving family. Her dad was a postal worker, um, and she was close with both of her parents. She actually never left the house that she grew up in. She never moved out. Nice. She did go to college at Butler. She didn't graduate, but she uh, almost did. And she studied a wide variety of fields. And I just love that they... I love what this communicates about her intellectual curiosity, which I think is one of the best things a person can be is intellectually curious. <laughs> her favorite subjects were English, math, zoology, and logic. Okay. So, yeah, I just think that's really cool, honestly. I wish I could just study logic. God, I know. You, I wish that was just, like, a degree I could do. I know. There's, like, not a lot of things that would make me want to like go back to what universities were like in the 1920s but a major God. in logic would be pretty cool instead i went for psychology which was probably the opposite of that <laughs> probably um i didn't do any better so um arguably significantly worse so <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> so um in a move that i think kind of um encapsulates both her love of learning with her innate communication skills she became a teacher and a damn good one. Mm -hmm. So she was she was a mover and a shaker. She was bright. She was vibrant. She had just a strong sense of wanting to do the right thing by people in her state. So kind of a natural, like, philanthropic, like, all the good things about being a politician, I think, were embodied in Madge in some ways, you know? So uh, they're at this party at the athletic club. D.C. Stevenson approaches Madge at the party asking her out. And while she wasn't interested in him romantically, they did begin what you could call a professional relationships, uh, perhaps a friendship, but whatever you want to call it, the relationship would end in her death. Oh, that doesn't yeah. sound like a good friendship. No. And so what's tough about this is that we have to work by intertwining like a couple of different narratives. But at the end of the day, it all keeps coming back to this notion of, of power. Mm -hmm. How do I attain? How do I maintain doesn't um, it always? Right? The greatest degree of power possible. And that's really what D.C. Stevenson was about. So I'm going to give you some backdrop on him at this point. Okay? I already hate him. Oh, well, you're going to hate him even more. <laughs> so um, have you heard his name before? It sounds familiar. Like I might have heard it in one of the documentaries or podcasts, but I don't. Like off the top of my head, I couldn't say who he is. So D.C. Stevenson was born in Texas in 1891 and was raised in Oklahoma. We don't know a whole lot about his childhood, but as a young adult, he enlisted in the army and went through basic training, but never actually served. In this time frame, the war that he would have served in was World War I. Mm -hmm. So one of the big things that the Klan did 
in the early to mid 20s was to um, really try to rope in veterans when they came back. He went through basic, but he didn't serve. That seems odd for World War One, a war where they yeah. were desperate for just bodies. Yes. And it's not in any way historically clear how he dodged it. Because Bone he worked. Spurs? What? Bone spurs? Probably something like that. I mean, he he, he worked throughout his entire 20s. He worked as a printer's apprentice um, most of the time. By the time he gets to Indiana, um, he is in his, I guess, uh, early to mid-20s as well. Um, but by the time he, like before he even got to Indiana, where he went in 1920, he had already married and abandoned two women. Um, and he left the first one for the second, and he left the second one for Indiana. God knows why. <laughs> he but just be- fell in love with the state. I guess, I guess he wanted to be a Hoosier. Being what it is, though, like Indiana at the time was really ripe for, um, how do I want to say this? It was, there was a lot of opportunity for power hungry movers and shakers to <laughs> um, install themselves into mid-sized city politics, essentially. It was a yeah. full time. It was, it's post-war where everything is like all about rebuilding and and reengaging. Um, you know, people post World War One, and you see Making a lot of promises in, and yeah, you see a lot of in general like that promise making. You see a lot of nationalism at this time, and it was it was meant to be a time of kind of building back up after a pretty a depressing stage in history. Obviously, not knowing that they were headed for. A greater depression. Mm-hmm. But the 1920s was it was it was definitely like a time to be a mover shaker in Indiana. So in 1920, he moved to Evansville, Indiana, which is at the very little southern tip of Indiana, right across the river from Kentucky. Um, he moved down there. He first took up work in the coal industry, but at the same time also was working on his political career. Um, he was only there for two years before he tried to run for Congress, which was very ambitious. Mm-hmm. He was actually registered as a Democrat in that election. Uh, he lost pretty handily, mm-hmm. so he did not win that election. At this point, desperate for any kind of in into the political circle of Southern Indiana, particularly, he met a man named Joe Huffington. Joe Huffington was basically a recruiter for the KKK. Great which at this time was gaining serious momentum for its second stage or kind of second iteration. Mm -hmm. So they had kind of hired um, and deployed people to be recruiters in different areas. One of the things I really like about the Behind the Bastards take on this is that they really focus on how much um, the KKK is basically at this point like an MLM. That was literally what I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah. Like, you pay your dues, then you give your dues to this guy, and right? Yeah, like, we have we have the image of the KKK in our head that's very informed by, like, the 1950s, 1960s era of the KKK, and that's not what this was. Yeah. It was still shitty. They were still assholes, but they were, like, racist LuLaRoe. Basically. <laughs> Basically. So, um, well, to unravel that, we're going to talk about the KKK now. <laughs> so, um, I arguably the first phase of the KKK is, um, 
I've, I mean, it's all awful. It's hard to say, like, which phase was the ugliest one. I have a very hard time with the first phase, the KKK. Okay, yeah. yeah. So here's what we're going to talk about. So the KKK is known to have three versions or phases. You'll you'll hear kind of phrases like phase one, phase two, phase three, or first clan, second clan, third clan. Mm-hmm. The era we're living in now is the time of the third clan. So, so the first phase of the KKK was started in 1865 by eight men in the small town of Pulaski, Tennessee. This group uh, was basically formed to be at the at its origin point a drinking club, which is so interesting considering their later hard take on prohibition. Yeah, but it was originally a drinking club of educated and wistful men who wanted to form a secret society with this strong social hierarchy, with all this like jargon and phrases and kind of cryptic language and rituals. It's so kind of heavily laden with ritual. And they wanted to get drunk and discuss the good old days of the pre-war South. Men always want to get drunk and discuss the good old days. This And this is what the KKK started as. It was eight guys trying to do this in a small town in Tennessee. Guys, wasn't it great when we were in charge? (laughs) And that basically is kind of how everything snowballs from there. So uh, quickly, you know, word spreads that there's these kind of secret little societies kind of going on um, and more chapters pop up. The chapters are not there's not necessarily a lot of overall like overarching KKK organization. The original chapter was not in any way like a governing body over other chapters. So uh, later in this phase, there is some overarching like organization. There's a grand dragon, a grand wizard that the naming kind of changes throughout history a bit. But um, in the early days, it was kind of these independent chapters or claverns, as they call them with a K, uh, popping up in these different areas, starting in Pulaski, Tennessee. Now, their actions pretty quickly shifted because what they all share is this desire to talk about how great life was when they could own slaves. And um, as a result, their actions pretty quickly shifted to the intimidation of former slaves, often in costume, which is where we we start to see the, not necessarily the mental image that you picture. Early clan outfits were not the white hoods and sheets, uh, but they were not totally dissimilar. You saw a lot of cloaks. You saw the tall hoods. You saw a lot of masks with exaggerated features. Um, and why they did this was because in their racist little brains, they thought that uh, former slaves would be super gullible and super superstitious, and that they would authentically believe that these were the ghosts of Confederate soldiers coming back to avenge their losses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they used this to try to scare and intimidate people. um, And it did start out as kind of like gross pranks and scare tactics, Um, And then snowballs again into voter intimidation, attempts to overthrow local and state governments, and violent attacks on African-American leaders, citizens, and their supporters. They made targeted efforts to particularly go after uh, people that were leaders in their communities, either elected or informal. And this was not a situation where we're like having a conversation first and talking about, you know, I don't like you because of this and this and this. They honestly went straight to violence at this point. Oh, fuck. It's hard to put numbers on it. We know that during the Reconstruction era, which is 1865 to about 1876, just shy of 2,000 African-Americans were lynched 
in the U.S. What we cannot necessarily know from that number because of the secrecy of each individual branch was precisely how many of those were carried out by official KKK groups. Mm. We know it's at least a thousand that would be like documented related to these chapters. Yeah. Um, but we can make the solid educated guess that even if they were not carried out uh, via official KKK group Clavern activities, that violence would have been endorsed by the KKK anyway. So it's really six of one half dozen of the other. In Inspired some ways. by, encouraged by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, the federal government did try to make Klan violence illegal by introducing a new law called the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. But the damage had already been done literally physically in the shape of violence and murder, uh, but also ideologically. The KKK had really started to infiltrate people's thinking. Um, I think once that gets in your brain, it's really, really hard to get it back out. So while that uh, violence could be like explicitly stated to be against the law, it's not like the U.S. did a whole hell of a lot to um, prevent or stop race-based violence after that. No, no, not much at all. Yeah. So I think it was pretty much a super ineffective act. (laughs) But they did it. So the U.S. at the time, the government wanted to say that the KKK had all been all but been eliminated at the time. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. 1871. They're gone. Whatever. We don't have any more racists anymore. It's 1871. What are you talking about? We're officially a post-racial society as of 1871, right? Totes. Totes. But obviously that's not true. Hopefully you can tell that this is very sarcastic. These little comments. Um, So, I mean, they just had to retool, essentially. The federal stance on this is like, uh... Yeah, okay, Black Americans, they're here. We're going to segregate really hardcore. We're going to instill Jim Crow laws. We are going to uh, treat people as less second-class citizens, and we are going to turn the other cheek at lynchings. But there's no KKK, so it's all chill, right? We got Jim Crow. We got separate but equal. Mm -hmm. This is what we call post-racial. Yep. Oh, God. So the one thing, though, is that after that time frame, the 1870s, the KKK became significantly less visible. Um, Some chapters did disband out of fear of um, government intervention, obviously. So then that brings us to the second era of the Klan, which is where our story takes place today. So the second era of the Klan begins in 1915. Catalyzed by the awful feat of American cinema, Birth of a Nation, from D.W. Griffith. Watching this for my film history classes in college was one of the worst experiences of my collegiate life, I would say. I never had to, and I thought we took the same film classes. I I took another one with Dr. Sumner. Oh, Um, God, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> I am I'm glad I missed that one and I only had to watch Altered States with Dr. Rombies. Oh my gosh, that was so good. That was a great <laughs> class. Um yeah, no, we we watched it in um yeah. It started off as a history of music class and it became a history of film class. It just was like very funky. But um 
I am so sorry you had to watch that. It was tough. It was tough. So what the film does, uh, for those that are not familiar, is that it um, essentially endeavors to outline the, quote, history of the Civil War and the rise of the Klan as vigilantes in post-war America. So it paints the Klan as heroic. Um, It particularly portrays and I think provides a pretty outright endorsement of white violence against black men uh, in particular to heroically protect white women from them. Yes. The film was, and this can't be overstated, it was a huge success. It was a blockbuster. It was the first film shown at the White House. It is, we watched it in that film class because it was a feat of early cinema insofar Uh as like the actual technical achievements and accomplishments of it yeah so it was very much kind of first of its kind it was the first like long form film wasn't it it was one of them yeah it was one of them so and it is quite long so it was it was a lot of firsts the unfortunate thing is that dw griffith chose this particular subject matter so i think like looking at it from like a, a film history lens it would have been a blockbuster regardless of its content because of what it achieved. Yeah. But this being the content, people ate it up. And it provided an absolutely perfect backdrop for the KKK to re-rise to power. And in there, fact, to rise into its most powerful iteration. There were a lot of protests about it. Yeah. Obviously not enough to kind of counter like the popularization of everything, but... Yeah. Uh, at least you got to watch it with Dr. Sumner because I can at least hope that he did a good. He did. Lecture, presentation. Here's why we're doing this and let's yeah. critique it while we're here. He did a great job. He, is a, he was a great professor. Shout out. <laughs> Doubt you listened. <laughs> but I like you. All right. So uh, at this time, a dude named William Joseph Simmons was the leader of the KKK. And we could do an entire like five episode spinoff just about him. But I want to just make sure that we have a, a good sense of what their ideology was at this point. So basically, the KKK obviously has its roots in extremist racism, right? Yes. But we also are following the flow of American history. So Mm. as we get into the early 1900s, we see a huge influx of immigration. We see immigration from a lot of, you know, much of the world, a lot of European countries, obviously. And the KKK also took strong stances against uh, immigration in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were aggressively anti-communist, aggressively anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic. They were um, anti-anything that they could consider to be liberal or progressive. Yeah. Anything other. Anything other. They were anti-science, anti-Darwinism. I saw one scholar call them militantly Protestant. So it's also important to understand that the KKK uses... And still does, and used at the time, a lot of Protestant Christian ideology to justify Mm -hmm. their actions. Yeah. And people trying to use Christianity to justify um, racism has deep, deep history of its own. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, the KKK was not, they did not invent this. They were not the first to do it. They were not the last to do it. But they did it. It was a huge part of their, of what kind of undergirded a lot of their ideology. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of, in many ways, how they modeled some of their ritual as well. I think that the the guidebook that Simmons wrote for the KKK has the most hilariously ironic name in the world. I don't think he probably knew that it would be, but he maybe he did. He called it the Cloran. Cloran. Like Quran with a K and an L. Of course he did. Why what else would he ever do? They did everything with cake. With yes. K's. Yes. So, you know, you read this thing, every K sound is a K. Um, they've got all this, like, you know, wording that they use, this jargon. In many ways, it sounds like um, it sounds like a very, very drunk version of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, Some of that stuff was purposeful, like the way that they named like the Grand Dragon and the Grand mm-hmm. Wizard was in part to kind of conceal what they're doing, but in part to like make it sound more mysterious and get people to like think it's mysterious but also so mm-hmm. think it's kind of funny and kind of take some of the sting out of things to get you interested exactly yeah and it's important to understand that like fraternal orders are um a pretty kind of widespread like social phenomenon like you've got oh, yeah. the freemasons right like and they also have you know kind of interesting language for what they do and, and have different names for things and stuff like that so in many ways, like, there's this kind of secret society, like, way of doing things. And the KKK did that and really, really ran with it. For those see- reasons, it gets you interested. It maintains the mystery. And secret societies were, like, a trend for a while. They were, like, mm-hmm. the new thing to do was to be in secret societies. Yeah. And, I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of, like, what got people to join. And uh-huh. it's not just racism that gets people to join this stuff. Right? Yes. So and I hate it. I know. I am going to now read to you a small so- selection from the Cloran. Um, God, I hate this. <laughs> me too. Me too. I hate it so much. Just to be clear, the KKK would hate me. Um, yeah. I was gonna <laughs> say, I'm glad I don't. Uh, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about this. Like I am like the lily ass white one here. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I look like a poster for a falafel cart, so (laughs) Um, they would not like me very much. Um, So I read this with great, great, great discomfort, Um, but I do want to just kind of just kind of put this out there to give a sense of um, I want to give a sense of how kind of encompassing it was, how if you were somebody vulnerable to this, how wrapped up in this that you could get. Okay. So this is the Ku Klux Creed. I have a very hard time with all the K sounds. Um, I would be stumbling all over. Oh, man. It's a struggle. We, the Order of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, reverentially acknowledge the majesty and supremacy of the divine being and recognize the goodness and providence of the same. We recognize our relation to the government of the United States of America, the supremacy of its constitution, the union of the states thereunder, and the constitutional laws thereof. And we shall be ever devoted to the sublime principles of a pure Americanism and valiant in the defense of its ideals and institutions. We avow the distinction between the races of mankind as same has been decreed by the creator. 
and we shall ever be true in the faithful maintenance of white supremacy and will strenuously oppose any compromise thereof in any and all things. We appreciate the intrinsic value of a real practical fraternal relationship among men of kindred thought, purpose, and ideals, and the infinite benefits accruable therefrom, and we shall faithfully devote ourselves to the practice of an honorable clannishness that the life and living of each may be a constant blessing to others. So that's the creed. The Chloron then takes us through um, how Sorry, meetings should go. Oh, go ahead. Laugh at, I can't not laugh at Chloron. I know. It kills me. It also, why did they not kills say, me. Why did they not say Knights then? Like, <laughs> the Knights. Oh, God. that's what, Maybe they did. I mean, maybe some of them did. They're dumb we enough. Don't know. Then we don't anyway, know. go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Please interject because I'm just like, at this point, I'm just rolling, right? Yeah. I have nothing to offer except like... Disgust? Yeah. Vaguely humorous disgust. Mm. So the order of business is basically like um, kind of what comes next. It tells them how to run their meetings. And what's interesting to me about this is it does a two things. It outlines the um, kind of like the ceremonies and stuff like that. But it also demonstrates how in many ways there's just this like banality to it. The second order of on the agenda is reading of approved minutes. There's uh, a ceremony of naturalization, which is what they call induction of new members to the clan. There's a specific line item for does anyone know of another clansman's family who needs help, financial assistance. They've got elections. They've got a closing ceremony. They've got other stuff in there um, as well. But just to say that this document like establishes basically meeting norms for them. Um, so it still sounds terrible. Yeah. Just to give you some uh, word salad to chew on, I'm going to read you off some of the officer titles that you would see in a clavern um, at any given time. So if every, you know, if, if cities have a, a clavern, then they have these orders or these um, officers, I should say. The exalted Cyclops would be the president, the Claylif, the vice president, the Cloakard, the lecturer, the Clud, a chaplain, Cleegrap, secretary, Clayby, treasurer, Clad, conductor, Clorogo, inner guard, Clexter, outer guard, Clocan, investigator, that's singular, Clocan, plural with two ends, board of investigators, and Nighthawks, Nighthawks, I should say, um, which were change candidates. Not sure what that exactly would mean for them. But yeah, that's, I mean, just to kind of show that language that there was like you said, there's all this kind of like secret coded language that provides this sense of, oh, I'm doing something really different. I'm doing something meaningful, right? Like mm-hmm. language gives people meaning and titles give things meaning. And so using this kind of like unique language to provide titles, to give names for things makes you feel like you're in on something, right? Yeah. Like I have... I have a knowledge that you don't have. I have a membership that you don't have. And I have an acceptance that you don't have. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, they've got diagrams of what the clavern should look like. 
like literally physically, like a floor plan. Um, it's all very rich, tightly, tightly ritualized. So I put that out there because I want to kind of talk about the differences with the new clan versus the old clan. Um, and also just to, again, like continue to underscore that there were reasons that people were seduced into doing this that were not necessarily overtly because of racism. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're implicit in all of it, right? But there were other reasons that people joined up. We're going to talk about that. So well, it's, also, it's also the 1920s. Everybody is racist. True. Yeah. And like I said, with the floor of four, like this is a history lesson, but it also is stunning to me how this is not distant history. Uh-huh. We're talking a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. right? That's really just not that long. It's it, really not. Historically, it's really, really not. It's a blip. You know, you think about your own family, like, my grandparents born in the 20s, right? Uh-huh. Um, it's just not that long ago, you know? Yeah. So one of the things with the new clan was, like we said before, they looked at the clan as a business in many ways and as a money-making scheme in many ways. There were recruitment drives that were extremely successful um, and members paid dues, making this a massive cash cow. Membership numbers are um, a little bit tough to put a pin on because of that secrecy, um, but we know it's at least four million. Some estimate six million at its height. Okay. So this made its top level leaders very, very, very wealthy men. When you think about the power of four million people as a voting block, yeah, that's a lot. That is also very, very incredible. That's a huge number of people. Um, and this is a voting block. This is people who hold office, lobbyists. One of the things that was super notable that I think just demonstrates the power, the, the political sway, the political power that the KKK had was that uh, they were s- heavily involved in politics at all levels, local, state, and federal levels, to a degree that a KKK-backed immigration bill um, passed in the 20s. That made it extremely difficult, nearly impossible to immigrate to the U.S. from anywhere other than Northern Europe. And and this law, this ruling held until the 1960s. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, even still, we give preference to a lot of those areas. Oh, yeah. Like in terms of like the amount of people that we allow in from different countries and all Mm -hmm. of that. So the echoes of that are still present. It's not like they're ever gone. Oh, no. I mean, my husband works in immigration. Like he can tell you (laughs) how like how long it's been since he's been able to get a, a student in from this country or that country. Like it's 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 awful. Um, It's awful. But, I mean, it goes to show the stronghold that, that they had in politics. Harry Truman, former president, was a member of the KKK for a time. I remember learning about this. Yeah. And he did it, according to himself, to uh, for political power. Yeah. Allegiance with the KKK was almost non-negotiable in, insofar as gaining political clout at this time. Yeah. You kind of had to. I mean, talk about them as a voting block. This is at a time that they're coming up. Women still haven't fully gotten the right to vote. Black people still haven't fully gotten the right to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Four million people is huge at this time. When you limit who can vote. Exactly. This is four million men. 
right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's a lot. Another kind of way to put this that I think is kind of a really jarring mental image is that, um, so Simmons gets ousted. He gets uh, voted out. The next leader is Hiram Evans. He led a march on Washington of 40,000 members of the KKK in 1925. Wow. So there's really fascinating and awful like archival footage of 40,000 hooded and cloaked members of the KKK marching down Pennsylvania Avenue. Damn. Yeah. And at this point there, you know, we think about these like hooded cloaked figures and yeah, when they were doing explicitly violent acts, they would often stay hooded. But when engaging in these like overt political activities, you saw their faces. It's not yeah. like there was a a shame in this, right? Um, their faces would be out as they were marching, you know, in Washington. Yeah, the shame and the hiding didn't happen until the 60s, and that had its own reasons behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like I said, the ubiquity of the KKK in American life cannot be overstated. They had newspapers, they had radio stations, they had movies. Walt Disney made a KKK mini movie that at one point. That does not shock me. Yeah. I'm surprised there's not a KKK Ford driving around. I mean, there probably was. Like, let's be real. Um, <laughs> the Walt Disney um, movie is so... I mean, it's just horrifying, but it's a good demonstration of how ubiquitous it was. What's um, it called? I want to Google it. Oh, gosh. It's not Song of the South. You're not talking about the sound of Song of the South, are you? Mm-mm. Oh, it's the uh, Alice and the Dog Catcher. I've heard of this before. Mm-hmm. Oh dear, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's bad. It's basically like cute little kids in a club that is modeled after the KKK, and they're wearing hoods, and it's just really rough. Fucking it is dear. really rough. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a whole series of these. There, It's the Alice comedies, this whole series. Um, there's the dog catcher one. There is Alice's mysterious mystery. Alice hunting in Africa. That does not. That one's rough. Yeah. Okay. So thanks, Walt Disney. Alice cans the cannibals. Ooh, dear. Yeah, it's rough. So, look, here's the other thing. Like, the KKK at this time was also, um, like, funding community projects. You saw community centers coming up, hospitals and churches being funded. I mean, they were, like, literally building hospitals. And so they were able to build a positive reputation in this way as well. Uh, There were fairs and festivals. They held fairs that would attract thousands of people i saw one clip that was a kkk picnic with twenty thousand people in attendance so these are kind of like what i think of as like their daytime operations these operations Uh are not in secret they're not shrouded in secrecy this is like explicit community organizing essentially in the worst backdrop possible but their actions by night were in many ways exactly what you think of when you think of the KKK. Intimidation, arson, lynchings, rapes, murders, intimidation, antagonization of 
basically anybody that they were, you know, that their creed told them to be against. They tell us very explicitly in that creed that this is about white supremacy. And that is what they were doing, right? Yep. So this brings us back to D.C. Stevenson. His rise to power began by being the leader of the Evansville Clavern, and he grew that clavern into being the biggest branch in the state. Due to these successes, um, and because he had also kind of helped support Hiram Evans's bid to being the National Grand Dragon, Evans appointed Steve the Grand Dragon of Indiana. Indiana had a huge KKK presence um, at the time, certainly the biggest presence in the Midwest. So this was a big it was a big appointment to be given. Mm-hmm. Evans also put him in charge of recruitment for the Midwest. So Stevenson would travel to recruit people into the KKK. He was known to um, feign being a veteran, to get veterans to join up. He was known to basically, you know, any tactic he could use, like, boy, these immigrants sure are taking our jobs kind of rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. To get people involved. Um, but he also was smart enough to talk about the the community outreach stuff. The, you know, if you're a member, you're protected. If your family runs into trouble, we will help you. And they did do those things for the people in their own, you know, in the in their claverns, right? So, you know, this was a, a way of recruiting people into something by saying, like, look, we have your back. We want you to be able to keep your job. We want you to be able to conserve the lifestyle to which you have become accustomed and uh, we're going to do that through this like specific uh, white supremacist anti-catholic anti-semitic byline those same like dog whistles and those same like go-to lines about like don't you want to keep your job don't you aren't you afraid of like what if this happens and this happens Mm -hmm. and i when we talk when we joked at the beginning about this being like an mlm I mean, that was kind of like how they recruited people. They're like, we're a family. And instead of girl boss, it was white man boss. Mm-hmm. And and we'll take and, care of you. Yeah, we'll take care of you. And most of the people that did join really didn't do anything. They were kind of members on paper. Mm-hmm. You get but the newsletter, I, whatever. But But again, that doesn't take away from the fact that you still signed on to this awful, mm-hmm. awful group. Yeah. I mean, I think the... The question that I often find myself asking in historical and contemporary contexts is, <laughs> um, even if you yourself don't participate in this or that immoral activity, mm-hmm. what level of it are you willing to indulge in your leaders? Yeah. And that, I think, is a question that undergirds all of this. This is also, I think, a really good example of the difference between uh, conservative and progressive politics in in this country in general. Okay. The KKK were the ones willing to go into the country, to go into rural communities and have these conversations with people. So it's this sense of we're the ones listening to you. We're the ones here. Look at this new hospital that you have access to now. Right. Mm-hmm. That's pretty damn seductive. And I think like you it's it's just very seductive. It's you want to mm-hmm. feel that support. Right. Yeah, I think also, like, keeping in mind, like, when we're talking about party affiliations, they weren't the same in the 1920s, but I know no. I know what you're saying, like, yeah. 
drawing the parallels but yeah mm-hmm. parties were very different republican and democratic parties were very different at this time yeah they were although they were different but they were not also, they were not what they were in the 1870s either yeah. like oh, yeah. by by this time in history you do start to see those lines get pretty clearly drawn mm-hmm. it was actually um important enough at this point that in the scope of all of this, uh, in order to maintain any kind of political power, D.C. Stevenson had to had to switch his party affiliation um, because he was uh, Stevenson, D.C. Stevenson. Sorry, coughing. <laughs> no, it's all right. He had to switch his party affiliation because he could get no traction running for anything as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. So um, this increased his chances for political success, basically. And he had a, a huge degree of political influence. He made deals with the governor and with the mayor's office in Indy and with mayor's offices in other cities and towns in the state because he could trade his skills and recruitment for votes, right? I can promise you these votes in exchange for policies that support our ideology. And that's what he did. There were consequences for some of those politicians later on. We'll talk a little bit about that when we get there, but... Um, It's not super on topic, but I do want to put out there that there were consequences for this collusion later on. But at the same time, he in his personal life was drinking extremely heavily, despite having to publicly be a prohibitionist in line with clan ideology. And he was treated by his doctor for alcoholism for years. He, especially in the early 20s, was also accused of multiple rapes, attempted rapes. Uh, and public indecency. There was at least one count of him masturbating uh, in public, like while leaning on a woman's car. He was a rampant sex offender, essentially. Um, And because of this reputation, this was part of the reason, not the entire reason, but part of the reason that Hiram Evans actually tried to have uh, Stevenson removed at a certain point. So as this, as these um, accusations grew and as the alcoholism grew, Evans tried to oust him. Stevenson was known to say, and he says this a lot uh, anecdotally, I am the law in Indiana. He finds himself to be untouchable. So when Evans was like trying to get him out, he said, well, I'm just going to secede from this organization anyway. And he starts up the Indiana clan which is a separate organization. So he's getting rid of that, that overall parent organization and he Uh himself is becoming his own parent organization. I'm my own clan now. Mm -hmm. And he takes his numbers with him. So the Indiana clan becomes an extremely powerful separate branch entirely of the KKK. It's crazy. So, it's after the um, the formation of the Indiana clan and kind of at the height of his individual power that Steve meets Madge Oberholzer. So Madge was known to be, as we've hinted, as many people were, pretty confused by the KKK. The noise coming from the KKK was, hey, we're different now. We are, yeah, we're, we're pretty conservative. We want things to be how they were in the good old days. We wear these funky clothes. We have these rituals. But look, we're building this positive community. You see these hospitals. You see these churches. Everyone you know is with us. But she also knew about the, the legacy of racist violence. And perhaps naive, willfully or ignorantly so, um, to the fact that this legacy was still alive and well. 
yeah. for a time. Uh, yeah. She did have exposure to it later on, but she this was very fraught for her as it was for a lot of people who knew kind of the backdrop of it, but were also seeing these positive effects in their own communities, right? So again, it's like, what are you willing to indulge in the people around you, right? Yes, yeah. So when they met in January of 1925, she recognized his power and appreciated some of his policy goals. He had some goals, weirdly, related to public health. So she actually agreed to, like, work for him a little bit. I got the sense it was kind of, like, freelancey, like, I'm going to come in and work with your books or do some, like, um, she did a lot of messaging for him, like, get this letter to this guy across town or whatever kind of stuff. Yeah, secretary type work. Uh, It wasn't by any means, like, a full-time job for her, but... That's why it kind of seemed like almost like a contract position or kind of freelancy the way I would look at it today. Yeah. But because of her background in the wonderful world of ELA, she also helped to co-author his nutrition book, 100 oh. Years of Health. Mm-hmm. Oh, dear. When you said, like, he had public health goals, mm-hmm. lots of things flew around my mind. <laughs> Was that one of them? <laughs> no, a diet book did not. No, I am dying to get my hands on a copy of that just to, like, what's this guy got to say about <laughs> Do you know uh, anything of what he's had to say about 100 years of nutrition? No, I have tried to find it, and it I haven't been able to find it archived anywhere. Um, but I'm going to keep trying. And if I do find it some, I think I am probably just going to have to dig into some like library archives basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not widely available by any means. It was not a commercial success. So, but you know, they did work somewhat closely together. So while she rebuffed his romantic advances, they did have a professional and kind of collegial relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. From here, I want to let Madge tell her story. I want to read from her dying declaration. Okay. So we introed with her dying declarations first paragraph, which ends with them meeting at the athletic club in early January of 1925. This is her coming back in. After the banquet, he asked me for a date several times, but I gave him no definite answer. He later insisted that I take dinner with him at the Washington hotel and I consented and he came for me at my home in his Cadillac car. And on this occasion, we dined together. After that, he called me several times on the phone, and once again, I had dinner with him at the Washington Hotel with another party. Subsequent to this, I was once at Stevenson's home at a party with several prominent people when both gentlemen and their ladies were present. I did not see him again until Sunday, January 15th, 1925, when upon returning to my home about 10 o'clock in the evening, I was informed by my mother, who said to me that there had been parties calling for me on the telephone and saying for me to call Irvington 0492. I called Irvington 0492 and Stephen answered and said, Stevenson answered and said to me to come down if I could go to his home, that he wished to see me about something very important to me, that he was leaving for Chicago and had to see me before he left. This was about 10 p.m. on Sunday. His home was only two or three blocks from mine. He said further that he was busy and could not leave, but that he would send someone for me. I recognized Stevenson's voice. Soon, a Mr. Gentry, whom I had never seen before, came for me and said he was from Stevenson's. I walked with Gentry to Stevenson's home. When we arrived there, we went inside. I saw Stevenson and that he had been drinking. His chauffeur, whom he called Shorty, was there also. Shorty is a young man. Later, a man whom they called Clank came in. 
Soon as I got inside the house, I was very much afraid, as I first learned then that there was no other woman about, and that Stevenson's housekeeper was away, or at least not in evidence. Immediately upon my arrival, they took me to the kitchen, and some kind of drinks were produced. It was then that Clank came in to the back door. I said I wanted no drink, but Stevenson and the others forced me to drink. I was afraid not to do so, and I drank three small glasses of the drink. This made me very ill and dazed, and I vomited. Stevenson said to me about this time, I want you to go with me to Chicago. I remember saying that I could not and would not. I was very much terrified and did not know what to do. I said to him that I wanted to go home. He said, no, you cannot go home. Oh, yes, you are going with me to Chicago. I love you more than any woman I have ever known. I tried to call my home on the phone, but could get no answer. Later, when I tried to get to a phone, they would not let me. These men were all about me. They took me up to Stevenson's room, and he opened a dresser drawer, which was full of revolvers. He told each of the men to take one, and he selected a pearl-handled revolver for himself and had Shorty load it. Stevenson said first to me that we were going to drive through to Chicago. He said for me to go with him, but I said I did not wish to and would not go to Chicago. Later, Gentry called the Washington Hotel at Stevenson's order and secured a reservation in a drawing room for two persons. They all took me to the automobile at the rear of Stevenson's yard and we started the trip. I thought we were bound for Chicago, but did not know. I begged of them to drive past my home so I could get my hat. And once inside my home, I thought I would be safe from them. They drove me to Union Station in the machine, where they had to get a ticket. I did not get out of the automobile all the way. Before we left the house, I remember Stevenson said to Clink, You get in touch with Claude Worley right away and tell him we are going to Chicago on a business deal to make money for all of us. Clank did not go with us in the car. Stevenson and Gentry sat in the car all the time with me until we got onto the train. We stopped at the Washington Hotel on the way down. Shorty got out and went in the hotel and came back. They would not let me out. I was dazed and terrified that my life would be taken and did not know what to do. Stevenson would not let me get out of the car, and I was afraid he would kill me. He said he was the law in Indiana. He said to Gentry, I think I am pretty smart to have gotten her. We got to the train, and although I cannot distinctly remember, I think only the colored porter saw us. They took me at once into the compartment. I cannot remember clearly everything that happened after that. I know Gentry got into the top berth of the compartment. Stevenson took hold of the bottom of my dress and pulled it up over my head. I tried to fight back, but was weak and unsteady. Stevenson took both of my hands, took hold of my two hands and held them. I had not the strength to move. What I had drunk was affecting me. Stevenson took all my clothes off and pushed me into the lower berth. After the train had started, Stephen got in with me and attacked me. He held me so I could not move. I did not know and do not remember all that happened. He chewed me all over my body, bit my face and neck, chewing my tongue, chewed my breasts until they bled, my back, my ankles, my legs, and mutilated me all over my body. I remember I heard a buzz early in the morning and the porter calling us to get up for Hammond. Then Gentry shook me and said it was time to get up, that we were to get off at Hammond. At this time, I was becoming more conscious and Stevenson was flourishing his revolver. I said to him to shoot me. He held the revolver against my side, but I did not flinch. I said to him again to kill me, but he put the gun in his grip. I had heard no sound from Gentry during the night. Afterwards, Gentry and Stevenson helped me dress, and the two men dressed, and they took me off the train at Hammond. I remember seeing the conductor. I was able to walk to the Indiana Hotel. I remember begging Stevenson and saying to him to wire my mother during the night, and he said that he would. 
I am not he had or he would. I am not clear about that. At the Indiana Hotel, Stevenson registered for himself and wife. I tried to see under what name, but failed to do so. This was about 6.30 in the morning. There were in the hotel lobby two colored bellboys and two colored girls. Gentry Stevenson went to the rooms. I had no money. I kept begging Stevenson and said to him to send my mother a telegram. I said to the bellboy, are there any blanks in the room? Stevenson made me write the telegram and said to me what to say. Gentry took the telegram and said he would send it right away. Stevenson lay down on the bed and slept. Gentry put hot towels and hazel on my head and bathed my body to relieve my suffering. We were in room 416 with Stevenson while Gentry was doing this. Stevenson said he was sorry and that he was three degrees less than a brute. I said to him, you are worse than that. Breakfast was served in the room. Shorty came in about this time. He said he had driven up in Stevenson's car. Stevenson ate grapefruit coffee, sausage, and buttered toast for breakfast. I drank some coffee, but ate nothing. So this so far is obviously quite an ordeal, right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about the the kind of physical after effects later, but when she says that he chewed her, the medical testimony that her doctor would give later said that it appeared that she had been cannibalized. He had taken bites, chunks of her flesh off of her body. This was not the first time that he had ever done that to somebody. In at least one of the um, rapes that he was accused of beforehand, at least one of those women talked about him biting her violently. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. So here comes Madge again. I said to Stevenson to give me some money that I had to buy a hat. Shorty gave me $15 at Stevenson's direction and took me out in the car. Shorty said to Stevenson he had been delayed getting there, as he could not find the hotel where we were in Hammond. Shorty waited for me while I went into a store close to the hotel to get a hat. This was a small black silk hat similar to one I have. It cost $12.50. When I came back to the car, I said to Shorty to drive me to a drugstore, in order I might get some rouge. We drove to a drugstore near the Indiana Hotel, and I purchased a box of bichloride of mercury tablets. I put these in my coat pocket. Then we went back to the hotel. During the morning, when we were in the hotel, the men got more liquor at Stevenson's direction. Stevenson said we were going to drive on to Chicago. Stevenson made me write the telegram to my mother, saying we were going to Chicago. Gentry took it. When I got back to the hotel with Shorty, I went up to the room. Gentry had a room next to Stevenson. His was number 417. I said to Stevenson to let me go into 417 to lie down and rest. He said, oh, you are not going there. You are going to lay right down here by me. I waited a while until I thought he was asleep. Then I went into room 417. Gentry stayed in the room with Stevenson. There was no glass in room 417, so I got a glass in 416 and took the mercury tablets. I laid out 18 of the bichloride of mercury tablets and at once took six of them. I only took six because they burnt me so. This was about 10 a.m. Monday, I think. Earlier in the morning, I had taken Stevenson's revolver, and while Gentry was out sending the telegram, I wanted to kill myself then in Stephen's presence. This was while he was first asleep. Then I decided to try and get poison and take it in order to save my mother from disgrace. I knew it would take me longer with the mercury tablets to kill me. Later, after I had taken the mercury tablets, I lay down on the bed and became very ill, I think. I think it was nearly four o'clock in the afternoon before anyone came into the room where I was. Then Shorty came in. He sat down to talk to me. 
He said to me what was wrong, that I looked so ill. I replied, nothing. He said, where is your pain? And I said it was all over. He said, I could not have pain without a cause. I said to him, can you keep a secret? He said, yes. I said, I believe you can. And then I said to him that I had taken poison and said to him to not tell Stevenson I was very ill and almost delirious at this time. I'd vomited blood all day. When I said to him I had taken poison, he turned pale. And in a few minutes, he said to me he wanted to take a walk. Then we went out. In a few minutes, Stevenson and Gentry and Shorty came into the room very much excited. Stevenson said, what have you done? I said, I asked Shorty not to tell. Stevenson ordered a quart milk and made me drink it. I said to Stevenson and the others that I had taken six bichloride of mercury tablets, and I said, if you don't believe it, there's evidence on the floor and in the cuspidor. Stevenson emptied the cuspidor into the bathtub and saw some of the tablets, and the cuspidor was half full of clotted blood. I said to Stevenson, what are you going to do? And he said, we will take you to a hospital here, and you can register as my wife. Your stomach will have to be pumped out. He said to me that I could tell them at the hospital I had gotten the mercury tablets through mistake instead of aspirin. I refused to do this as his wife. Stevenson said, we will take you home. I said I would not go home. Either that I would stay right there and for them to leave me there and go about their business or to let me register at another hotel under my own name. Stevenson said, we will do nothing of the kind. We will take you home. Stevenson said the best way out of this, out of it was for us to drive to Crown Point and for us to get married. Gentry said he agreed with him. I refused. Stevenson snapped his fingers and said to Shorty, pack the grips. Stevenson held me downstairs. I did not care what happened to me. Just before we left Hammond, I said to Shorty to call my mother up. He said, if I do that, she will be right up here. And I said, what could be sweeter? Stevenson said to me that he had called her. I said to him, what did she say? And he replied that she said it would be all right if I did not come home that night. I don't know much about what happened after that. My mind was in a daze. I was in terrible agony. Shorty checked out for all of us, and they put me in the back seat of the machine with Stevenson. We then started for home in the automobile. After we got a piece, Stevenson said to Shorty to take the auto license plates off the car, which he did, and Stevenson said to him to say, if questioned, that we had parked in the last town we passed through and the plates had been stolen. All the way back to Indianapolis, I suffered great pain and agony and screamed for a doctor. I said I wanted a hypodermic to ease the pain, and they refused to stop. I begged and said to Stevenson to leave me along the road someplace, that someone would stop and take care of me if he wouldn't. I said to him that I felt he was more cruel to me than he had been the night before. He said he would stop at the next town before we got there, but never did. Just before reaching a town, he would say to Shorty, drive fast, but don't get pinched. I vomited in the car all over the back seat. Stevenson did not try to make me comfortable in any way. He said he thought I was dying, and at one time said to Gentry, this takes guts to do, Gentry, she is dying. I heard him say that he had been in a worse mess than this before and got out of it. Stevenson and Gentry drank the entire trip. I remember Stevenson saying that he had power and saying that he made $250,000. He said that he was his word was law. After reaching Indianapolis, we drove straight to his house. When we reached his garage, he said, there's someone at the front door of the house. It was sometime during the night that we got to the garage, as I think we left him at about 5 o'clock. And Stevenson said to Shorty to go and see who it was. Shorty came back and said, it's her mother. I remember Stevenson said to me, you will stay right here until you marry me. Stevenson or someone carried me up the stairs into a loft above the garage. Stevenson did nothing to relieve my pain. I do not remember anything that happened all night after we reached the garage. I was left in the garage until I was carried home. A big man, the Mr. Clank mentioned before, took me home. He shook me and awakened me and said, you have to go home. I asked him where Stevenson was and he said he didn't know. He said, you must forget this, what has been done. 
Uh, this is Stevenson. You must forget this, what it has been done. And I am the law and the power. He said to me several times that his word was the law. I was suffering and in such agony. I begged and said to Clank to take me home in the car. He said he would order a taxi, but finally said he would take me home in Stevenson's car. He put my clothes on me and carried me to the car and put me in the back and drove me home. I said to him to drive up in the driveway. He did and carried me to the house and upstairs into my bed. It was about noon Tuesday when we got home. I, Madge Oberholzer, am in full possession of all my mental faculties and understand what I am saying. The foregoing statements have been read to me and I have made them as my statements and they are all true. I am sure that I will not recover from this illness and I believe that death is very near to me. And I have made all the foregoing statements as my dying declaration and they are true. Signed, Madge Oberholzer. You look like you're thinking. That's an ordeal. Mm-hmm. Like, how much time had passed between all of that? Was it... Because I'm trying to keep Like, two track. nights? It's, it's two nights. I was going to say, two, like, 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. It's two nights. That's... What sparked this? What triggered this? This is so much brutalization to do to a woman yeah and this is where i think what he says to her in her account is really interesting this idea Uh that like right away he says i've never loved a woman more than i love you yeah yeah and we do know that she had rebuffed his romantic advances and Mm -hmm. i wouldn't be surprised if this was a situation where it's the rebuffing it's the rejection that drives it considering what a narcissist he is yeah that coupled with the narcissism the entitlement the oh i've done this before i've gotten away with worse Mm -hmm. all of that stuff that he was saying in the car before yeah it's an entitlement it's a complete disregard for another human to be like i can just do what the fuck i want exactly and it's, he says it in these little statements, right? Like, I've been in a situation, a worse situation. I've gotten away with it before. I can do it again. That sort of thing, right? Yep. So when Madge gets home, it's obvious that she is severely injured between the mercury tablets and the assault. She is in critical physical condition. Her parents call a doctor immediately, but... It was quickly established that not much could be done to save her. It was too late to pump her stomach of the mercury pills, as Stevenson had suggested. The wounds, the bite wounds, became infected over time. The whole ordeal started on March 15th, and she got home two days later on about the 17th, uh, that Tuesday. She would die on April 14th after nearly a month of agonizing pain from the infection from the bites, Uh, alongside kidney failure from the mercury poisoning. While at home, she knew that she was dying, and so she asked that her lawyer take this statement on March 28th, and that she take the statement that he read it to her a couple of times that she signed it. She knew, and it was crucial to her that he be punished to the full extent of the law, even though he thinks he is the law that he faces the consequences appropriate to his actions. Yeah. And her lawyer pursues that. And Stevenson is prosecuted for the crimes against Madge. 
the medical testimony was really interesting. Like I said before, the uh, the doctor that testified said that she had been, quote, chewed by a cannibal. The attending doctor uh, talked about a specifically an extremely significant bite to her breast. It was probably the origin point of the staph infection. Yeah. And that the infection had reached her lungs. Um, the doctor thought that if she had been taken right away after the assault, that she probably could have been saved that the infection could have been pre- prevented. What the defense essentially tried to argue was that Madge died by suicide, that she took the mercury pills. Now, Madge took the mercury pills for one of two reasons, or maybe a little bit of both, to that she did want to complete suicide, that she did want to rid herself of this pain. Yeah. But some argue that she didn't take the... A, a fatal dose, a lethal dose, and that her intent was to poison herself just enough to arouse his sympathies and get him to leave her be. Yeah. I so, I tend to feel that one more, mm-hmm. just based on what is in her dying declaration, mm-hmm. because she only took six of them when she could have taken more. Mm-hmm. And she told them, like, this is what I did. I poisoned myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she also says explicitly in the declaration that she'd rather do this than shoot herself to save her mother the disgrace. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think she was I think she was very smartly trying to get out of a situation with the best idea that she could come up with. Really? Yeah. So this is the, the back and forth of the courtroom saga is basically the argument about whether or not she died by suicide or died as a result of the wounds inflicted by DC Stevenson. Mm -hmm. A couple of the witnesses that she mentioned in her testimony did appear in court, including the, um, the porter from the train, the attendant from the train who did speak to, uh, what he observed that she had gone through, which he didn't see the assault take place, but he did see her, you know, um, being kind of forced onto the train car. Um, yeah. So there was witness testimony to that. At the end of the day, a Noblesville, Indiana jury found D.C. Stevenson guilty. They did move the trial out of Indy for fear they of his to, connections. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Noblesville is not like very far away, but he did have some semblance of a fair trial in Noblesville. Noblesville is like a suburb of Indy, like kind of like an exurb. He was found to be guilty. He was uh, convicted. And even though he had had Governor Jackson of Indiana in his pocket uh, before that time, the governor absolutely refused to stand by him in this situation, refused to. He would have had the power to commute a sentence. He said no. Um, As a result of this, Stevenson released a list of basically public officials who had received bribes from the KKK. And that list of names would lead to, um, in part, the public disgracing of many, many, many prominent politicians related to the KKK. Mm, oh, no. So the Indiana clan saw a an immediate and dramatic decrease in membership. I mean, it was yeah. like people were so outraged by this. They were so shocked. Um, this really was like in many ways, somebody that obviously they admired. Right. Yeah. And these were not excusable crimes in their mind. So 
membership dwindled extremely, extremely quickly. It fell down to, I thought I had the number in here, but I can't find it now. But at its height in Indiana in 1923, it was 30% of the male population was registered members of the KKK, which is about 250,000. Yeah, isn't that wild? So I know at least after the first wave, they lost at least 60% of their membership right in the wake of this um, trial and then further dwindling from there. Nationwide, the KKK would suffer those losses kind of in waves, Mm -hmm. but it would see a, a dramatic, dramatic decrease and would kind of become the much more underground and marginal KKK that we know to be kind of the third phase or the third wave of the KKK. Now, there were several politicians that were convicted as a result of taking these bribes, including the mayor of Indianapolis, John Duvall. Um, He spent 30 days in jail for um, taking bribes from the KKK. And uh, there were a few other prominent people that were charged and uh, had to do some kind of fines or fees or whatever, including Governor Jackson the uh, George Coffin, the chairman of the Marion County Republican Party. These two were bri- charged with trying to bribe um, Warren McRae, who was the former governor prior to Governor Jackson. So there was a lot of you know political fallout from this happening as well. And just kind of like a massive like public revolt against the KKK in many ways catalyzed by what would happen to Madge Oberholzer. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So Stevenson was, he was sent to jail. Oh, no. Yep. He was paroled in 1950, but violated his parole uh, later that year. And he actually tried to flee to Minneapolis and was caught there and then sent back to jail and served another 10 years. Interestingly, and also hilariously, in 1953, he tried to uh, plea for parole again, tried to appeal for parole, saying that he was never a member of the KKK in the first place. Mm. Like, bro, you were in charge of the whole damn thing. What are you doing? You were like the grand something something. Yeah, the grand wizard dragon (laughs) clo whatever. (laughs) Um, The grand cloaca. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Well, I don't like it, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Um, It's got a ring to it. So he was actually eventually paroled in 1956 under the condition that he leave Indiana and never come back. He got banished from Indiana. He got banished from Indiana. That's a thing. Yeah. So he got banished. He moved to Tennessee for a hot second, got married to his fourth wife while still legally married to a woman in Indiana. But he was like, well... I mean, I'm banished, so I guess I can just go ahead and get remarried, right? Rules don't apply to the banished. Yep. Uh, His criminal activities did not stop. In 1961, when he was 70, he was arrested in Missouri for an attempted sexual assault of a 16-year-old girl. The charges were vacated um, due to insufficient evidence, but he did have to pay a fine and was then banished from Missouri. (laughs) 
Uh, in 66, he dies in his home in Jonesboro, Tennessee, not that far from the original site of the very first KKK club. The clubhouse. Yep. As a... Uh, <laughs> this kills me. As a member of the service, he's actually buried in the USVA Mountain Home National Cemetery in Johnson City, Tennessee. Oh, what a dick. Yep. Later on, in part as a result of this case, um, Congress would pass um, some legislation banning serious sex offenders uh, from being buried in veteran cemeteries. Sex offenders are not KKK members. Right. And also people convicted of capital crimes, but not KKK members in general, no. Okay. Yeah. Then we'd have to move Harry. That's right. So many Harrys. I'm a Truman. Oh, yeah. I got that now. <laughs> it's late and i just talked for two hours about the cake cake <laughs> that was a lot that was a lot so not to totally gloss over he did terrible horrible things his entire fucking life mm-hmm. and not to diminish what he did to madge but the thing that brought him down was a sexual assault on a white woman mm-hmm yeah that was what got everybody suddenly up in arms about him. When you contrast that with the fact that the KKK found its resurgence in large part due to a movie that depicted white Klansmen rescuing white women from sexual violence at the hands of black men, it paints a very disturbing picture, right? It really does. And I don't have the brain power right now to create the through line yeah, but I mean, I mean, the through line is there, though, right? Like, there is enough outcry and outrage and anger and vitriol that could be directed at somebody um, for what he did to Madge Oberholzer, and that caused him his power. But every single thing up until then... That's fine. Nothing, right? Yeah. And the documented cases of what the KKK was trying to make people so afraid of are so insanely few and far between that, you know, it's not like we have to say it, but you can say the quiet part out loud. That was never the problem. It, was, it never was. And even the, the cases that are few and far between, how many of those are lies? Exactly. Yeah, like exactly. Emmett Till is always the one that obviously comes, the big one that mm-hmm. comes to mind. But like this idea of like, so much of white supremacy is rooted in we have to protect white women. We have to protect white women from these brutes. Mm-hmm. And then so you justify a million atrocities based on that. Yeah. But you're the exact same people committing. the. You are the ones committing those atrocities. Mm-hmm. You're the you're the ones hurting people, even the white women that you claim to be protecting. Exactly. And that. I mean, there were moments, I think, in Madge's testimony that makes it pretty clear that he was, like, willing to talk about and brag about his past crimes in some ways, right? Like, I've done worse and gotten away with it. You know, this is dark stuff for Gentry. Like, you got to get used to it. She's dying. Like, that heavily implies that this is not the first time that he has been involved in a violent sexual assault that may have resulted in somebody's death. We'll never know. Yeah, he is a serial rapist. Mm -hmm. Like, most most likely he is a serial rapist yeah he's a great a piece of shit yeah 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 i think it's a really interesting 
I think it's really interesting to follow the whole chronology of it because it's like, yeah, here's this, here's this invented big bad that we're trying to save people from or whatever. And as always, they're the problem in the first place, right? They're the one creating the scenario. They're the one creating this like fictional, this whole fiction so that they can do their dark deeds. And eventually the dark deeds brought them down, but it wasn't, it wasn't all the dark deeds. Yeah. No one is out here saying that DC Stevenson at that time, no one was out there saying like, wow, what a bad guy for all that KKK stuff he was doing. It was what a bad guy for what he did to Madge Overholzer. Exactly. Exactly. Ooh, that was a lot, dude. Jesus Christ, girl. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this one, like, it's it's open shut. It's 100 years old. It doesn't leave a lot of, like, space necessarily for scrutiny, I don't think. I mean, yeah, sure. But it's not like there's, like, a something to do. I just think it's it's an interesting food for thought to think about where any of us hold the line for mm-hmm. the people that we follow, for our, our yeah. leadership, for whomever and what are you willing to indulge in other people and what are you not willing to indulge where does the buck stop what it brings to mind for me is like when you hear a group or a political party or something creating a boogeyman Mm. look at who that boogeyman actually is and who's actually doing those actions yeah yeah i mean boogeymen create boogeymen Mm -hmm. to deflect from their own boogeyness right i mean that's that's what this boils down to in so many ways. Yeah, Matt Gates. Mm-hmm. Seriously, jeez. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, on that note, before we start a three-hour rant about Matt Gates, you want to tell us about <laughs> next week? <laughs> uh, can we just rant about Matt Gates? No, I'm too tired for this. Yeah, tomorrow. To text me tomorrow, but I got to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> next week. So you requested that we do something that had maybe even a vaguely happy ending. <laughs> I did request that because I was like, <laughs> look, I'm knee deep in some KKK shit. I need <laughs> I need something. And so I found something and it became more complicated than a happy ending. But there are at least threads of joy and threads of hope within it. Mm. So next week we are going to be talking about Paul Franzak, the foundling. Hmm. Interesting. If I say foundling, what brings what comes to mind? I mean, I'm a witchy bitch, so I think about like um, babies left in the forest for fairies to take. How about on a New Jersey street corner? Ooh, I think that somebody probably found an anonymous baby on a street corner. Yeah. Jeez. Interesting. So we're going to talk about a really, really twisty tale. Hmm. I look forward to it. Okay. I think it's a twisty tale with some threads of hope and joy. Um, Yeah. Until then, friends, please engage with us on the socials. Please consider giving us some of those beautiful five stars. We like those. They're very nice. We also would love to take some case requests. Yeah. uh, To see what you'd like us to research and talk about. We're we're here for it. Send some case requests from the Dakotas because (laughs) it is just really like I've looked in the Dakotas and the problem is there's not a lot of reporting. Mm. 
Interesting. Yeah, it's like it's out there. hard to f- it's hard to find good meaty stories from mm. the Dakotas. Yeah. All right. So give us some Dakotas, people. Let's yeah. see what we can do. We're Let's not ignoring we you. You're just very scant on your reporting. Yeah. Yeah. That would be good to have more of that, wouldn't it? I mean, not good, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, friends. We are too tired, ladies. We need to sign off here. So um, I'm sorry that I probably brought you way the hell down with a long conversation about the KKK, but it's an important part of our history in this country. So it's okay. It's okay. We love it. Yeah. It was was interesting. It's got me thinking. Good. All right, friends. So uh, we will want to make sure that you are very nice and eating cheese. And eating and chocolate. So much chocolate. Mm-hmm. Drinking craft beers. Oh, yes. Doing Maybe Midwest bourbon. stuff. Yeah, it's sit on the porch with a beer season now, officially, apparently. Oh, so Almost, almost. Don't put your plants out just yet, guys. Pro- mm-hmm. I promise you, it's not time yet. Wait until a couple weeks, a couple weeks. Wait until May. But we love you. We love you. Thank you. you. Bye, guys. Yeah. Bye. Bye, friends. This episode is brought to you by Bix Vapo Cool Sore Throat Throat Spray. Oh shit. I might need to take some. No, I'm going to take some Benadryl before bed tonight. Mm, I'm going to do that too because I need to sleep before what I have going on tomorrow.